we're going to speak to Greg Combay. Now, Greg Combay was the Minister uh, for Climate Change and Industry and Innovation for a few other things in the uh, most recent Labor government or governments before the last election. And in his previous career in trade unions, Greg Combay was involved in, well, many significant uh, many significant events. He was involved in a long-running and bitter waterfront dispute in the late 1990s. He was involved in representing ex-ANSET employees as they tried to recover their entitlements after that company went under and in negotiating with James Hardy over compensation for those affected by asbestos. He's now written his autobiography, The Fights of My Life, and Greg Combe joins us on the line. G'day, Greg. How are you, James? Yeah, very good, and it, 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 it does seem to be a theme, at least of your professional life, fights, lots of fights, Yeah. Yeah, there have been a lot of fights. And when I was thinking about the title of the book, I thought, God, a lot of the things I've been involved with have been such hard fights. And, you know, getting compensation for asbestos victims from James Hardy and what turned out to be the biggest personal injury settlement that we were aware of, it was worth about $4.5 billion over the next 40 or 50 years, that settlement. It was it was an incredibly hard fight. And so are a lot of the other things that I was like the waterfront dispute, or even doing carbon pricing in the Gillard government. Uh, very hard things to do, but I'm proud of what I've done. And they all took a toll, and we'll come back, and you've been very honest in writing about the toll they took. We'll talk about that shortly. But it seems one of the significant moments in your life was you, you did mining engineering at university in the, in the 70s, and then you were sort of heading off into a career that looked like it was heading into mining management. Then all of a sudden you well, dropped out, really, and, and went to Cairns. What was going on? <laughs> well, as I was studying mining engineering in the 70s, I worked in the coal industry. I worked as a labourer in coal mines in Lithgow, out west of Sydney. And um, at the age of 18, I joined the Miners' Federation. And I'd come from a labour family growing up in Rudy Hill in the western suburbs of Sydney. And um, then joining a union at that age, I got exposed to union organisation and and, um, you know, I really got interested in unionism and, and the labour movement and I thought I don't really want to end up as a mining executive. And, um, and so why did you think that? Because I'm sure a lot of your colleagues and a lot of people going through uni with you, that's exactly what they did. What no, that is exactly what, what, you know, was expected of you, yeah. studying mining engineering. Well, I was as immature as many people, I suppose, at 18, 19, 20 years of age and... I really enjoyed the engineering course, but working in the coal mines made me well aware of the fact that I suppose my values and commitment were with working people and and uh, that was where my interest was. And after I'd finished my course and worked for a while, I went up to Cairns and, uh, and thought that through. I worked in minerals exploration up the Cape York Peninsula. And uh, when I came back to Sydney a couple of years later, I thought, well, I... I want to work for what I believe in and, you know, justice and fairness and helping people. And so I started working in community organisations and I eventually ended up working for trade unions. And in particular, the Waterside <laughs> Workers Federation at a, at a really interesting time. And, and, and uh, you, you were there, weren't you? And, and just when things started starting to heat up and, and, yes. and then when the, when the, when the Patrick Stevedores... Uh, lockout happened. You're actually yeah. 
you're at the ACTU then, yes? Yes, I was. So when I started working for the Waterside Workers Federation or the Wharfies in 1987, the industry was still pretty much as it had been organised in the Second World War. And the, the workers were not employed by individual companies. They were employed essentially by a, an industry-wide, nationwide agency. And not a lot had changed in that whole post-war period. And so tremendous structural change was coming in the industry. And while I was at the union, we negotiated a lot of those changes. But eventually, by the time I'd gone to the ACTU... Uh, you know, a huge dispute broke out. People might remember in 1998, the waterfront dispute, and that was really the, uh, you know, coming forward to the economic restructuring of that industry in a big way, and it was a and, and I terrible think in fight. Your, before yeah. we get into the <clears throat> nitty-gritty of it, I, I, it, it seems in your book you acknowledge that there were many practices on the waterfront that did need to be updated, that were, that, that did, that were a bit outmoded, which kind of put you in a difficult position representing the workers, but also trying to persuade them that some of the, uh, some of the perks they had were, were yesterday and not tomorrow. Oh, that's very much the case, James. The, you know, there was a practice that was pretty notorious called the nick, and, uh, you know, which was basically people nicking off from work early. And we just said to the guys on the job, you know, that, that's not on. It, it, it's got to finish. It can't continue. You've got to get with the way the workforce is organised these days. It's not the old days. And that was a pretty hard message for some guys because it had been going on for a long time. But they were very good people and, and Chris Corrigan wanted to break through and bust or anything like that. But he also, with the government, wanted to go further than that. He just didn't want to modernise the arrangements on the waterfront. The government encouraged him to get rid of that workforce altogether and thereby get rid of the mar what had become the maritime union by that time. And So what we were fighting for in that dispute was the right of those employees you know, not to be sacked because they were members of a union, for the union not to be thrown out of the place, but to negotiate what the employment arrangements should be, to recognise that there needed to be change, but that people had the right to negotiate those changes and retain their union membership if that's what they wanted, and that's what we succeeded in doing. Which all sounds, you know, I mean, you explain it very calmly and sensibly, but as you describe it in your book, the toll on you between the union and, and being one of the chief negotiators with uh, Patrick <coughs> Stevedores and Chris Corrigan was... Was enormous. You had, a, you had a young daughter. You'd said it sounds oh. like you were stressed, exhausted, even even death threats. Oh, it was a terribly difficult. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And, was it? Oh, and particularly for John Coombs, with whom I worked then. He was the leader of the Maritime Union. The toll on him uh, was terrible, you know, physically and emotionally. And we worked very, very hard for a year on that dispute, even though it was only in the media for uh, several months. And, and I presume when you're in that. There's no getting out. I no. mean, because you feel you're carrying the hopes and, and, and really the responsibility of taking care of the thousands of people who are involved in the dispute on yeah. your own shoulders. You can't get out early. Oh, absolutely not. We're acutely conscious that we took the responsibility of representing, uh, you know, a couple of thousand people and their families in that dispute. And you just can't say one Sunday when you wake up, oh, I'm a bit too tired now. You know, you've taken that responsibility and you need to see it through, and that's what we did. And besides that, all of those people had a lot of stress to deal with. So, 
we took it on, we saw it through, and you know, from our point of view, we achieved all of the objectives that we set. But it, those sort of disputes are bare knuckle, knock them down, drag them out fights, like really brutal, and uh, that certainly was. And, and you're aware at the time, it, it, it seems like the toll that would take, not just on you, but on on on, on your relationship and on. Even on your your ability to you know be a parent to your daughter. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I, there's one story in the book that I, I tell. For example, that we were John Coombs and I were in Sydney on a Friday, negotiating, uh, trying to resolve the dispute. I was on a plane at four. I got a taxi at three, which is taxi changeover time, and I, I needed to be back no later than. Uh, six o'clock at the childcare centre where my daughter was uh, because it closed at that time and I needed everything to go like clockwork, you know, and, and it was hard enough getting a cab on a Friday at three at changeover. I get on the plane and it was, we're all loaded up, ready to take off at four and um, then they announced that someone was late getting on board the plane and it was going to be delayed and eventually when this person got on the aircraft, I spontaneously got up, I was so tense, and grabbed a hold of him and said, where have you been? <laughs> and, and, but possibly in a bit more animated fashion than in that. In a bit more, with a possibly a little bit of bad language. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, oh, I'm from Queensland, we're on daylight saving, we're going to have daylight savings. And uh, I was just wandering around the airport and I didn't realise it was time for takeoff. And I shook him <laughs> But that's the sort of thing that stress and tension does. And So that's a know. bit of a red flag, isn't it? And, and what's interesting is when that dispute, uh, and I'm, I'm talking to Greg Congbay, by the way, the, about his autobiography, the, the Fights of My Life. When that dispute ended, it doesn't sound there, like there was any thought of then stepping back. In, in, in fact, shortly afterwards, you're in a busier job doing similar disputes. Yes, and I, I put a lot into my work, as, as everyone does, I understand, but... After that dispute was over, I was, I was absolutely exhausted, but not long after it was, you know, the, the leadership of the trade union movement was changing and after that dispute it was widely expected that I'd take over and I did as Secretary of the ACTU, which is the main sort of position at the ACTU for actually running things and conducting industrial disputes. So I took over from Bill Kelty, who is a great trade unionist, and um, pretty soon I was into the next sort of thing, and 2001 in particular, ANSET collapsed, leaving $780 million of employees' entitlements you know, up in the air, so to speak. Um, Fifteen or 16,000 people lost all their annual leave, their long service leave, their accumulated sick leave entitlements and more, their redundancy pay, and uh, you know, that was a fully unionised company, and I took that on to try and get it back. It wasn't until 10 years later, I was sitting as a minister in Parliament House one night when a press release came out. After all the hard work we'd done to get the money back, people got their final payment and they ended up getting about 98, 99 cents in the dollar, but it took 10 years to get it all. And some sort of, you know, fights like that are pretty hard too. And I, I bet the James Hardy one was too, where, where you and... Uh, Bernie Banton were both made members of the Order of Australia. You were basically given prime responsibility for negotiating with James Hardy a compensation package for those affected by asbestos. Yes, uh, that, that was the. Even though the waterfront was the hardest fight, that, the James Hardy one was the most emotionally difficult fight 
Now, I'd seen people dying of asbestos-related diseases in my work and personally, and, uh, you know, working with Bernie Banton, he was terribly affected by asbestosis at that time. Later, I was to see him die of mesothelioma. You know, it's a very difficult thing. The, the, a company like James Hardy knew that it was killing people for 70-odd years, you know, and they hid it along with other asbestos manufacturers. And then in the 90s, the company took their assets overseas to try and put them beyond reach of asbestos victims in Australia. <clears throat> and so it was, it was a dreadful thing. And I was extremely angry and I thought I'm going to use the capacity of the trade union movement to try and make sure that people who die of asbestos diseases in Australia from James Hardy's products, that they have access to compensation. And <clears throat> compensation, you know, it doesn't fill in for people's loss of health and their lives, but it is something and it gives them a sense that justice has been served. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, that's what that fight was about, and it was a very hard argument because all the assets were overseas. All that we could really do was shame the directors of the company into cutting a deal with us for personal injury settlement, which is what they ultimately did. Talking to uh, Greg Combay about his autobiography, <coughs> The Fights of My Life, uh, Greg, you then you entered Parliament, uh, I suppose a, a, a not an uncommon thing for a high-ranking trade union official uh, to do as a member of the Labor Party, you, you didn't spend a day in opposition in your in your six years in in Parliament. That's pretty good. But one of the things that comes out in the campaigns you've just described as a union official, I guess, is the the clear thinking and discipline of those campaigns. And one of the things you rail against in your book is the ill discipline, really, of the Labor Party. Not in opposition, where parties are sort of expected yeah. to be ill disciplined. <coughs> But in government, what, what what do you what do you put that down to? The leaking, the backgrounding that clearly made you very angry. What was going on? I mean, parties are supposed to do that in opposition, not in government. Well, that's I suppose that's right. Although I didn't like the Labor Party doing that in opposition either, James. But when I got into uh, Parliament and was on the front bench for Labor, you know, from the victory, Kevin Rudd's victory in two thousand and seven. Um, I did expect that there'd be discipline exercised and that we'd unite and work as a Labor government to try and do good things. You know, that's why I'd gone in there. And uh, But it, it wasn't as I expected. And I'm not making a complaint about it, but I, I think it's a lesson that needs to be learnt. If you, you know, have internal division and people criticising each other and leaking to journalists on an anonymous basis. It does tremendous damage and it undermines what you're really there for. And in the Labor Party, we're, you know, people have a set of values that is the reason we're in the Labor Party and that's to try and do good things for people, to pursue fairness, to pursue justice, equality of opportunity in education and health. And that's what you should concentrate on. But, um, I mean, I think, I think we all, you know, most people, whether you're a Labor supporter or a Liberal supporter or a Green supporter or whatever, most people know that. It's, it's, it's common sense. So, so why, why did so much of it happen? Oh, well, I think in, in politics, um, you know, particularly inside a political party, if you think about it, in, when you're in government, as we were, you might have 83-odd members of parliament in the House of Reps and another 30-odd people in the Senate... 
So that's your party room or your Labor caucus. A lot of egos. And, and everyone has an ego. Everyone's there to try and also get to a position of influence. And, and there's a very limited number of places and only one person can be leader. And it's a very competitive environment. Mm. And whilst there's a binding set of values and a commitment to try and be in government, it's competitive. And, you know, Kim Beasley had been bumped as leader in 2006. I think he would have won and been a great Prime Minister from 2007, but that wasn't to be. Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard knocked him off at that time. Then, you know, they won government. And ultimately, Julia Gillard, of course, moved Kevin Rudd out of place. And then Kevin Rudd went on a campaign of revenge. And that just divided the government, the Labor government in that period, really profoundly. And it was very destructive. Can you, can you give us an, a bit of an insight into the day-to-day life of a, of a minister? Because I think you describe it very well. You, you say you were at home uh, maybe two to four days a month when you when you're a minister. Yep. And, and you get 250 briefs a week, which might be a centimetre or two thick, all of which you've got to make decisions about. It, it's, it, it sounds brutal. Well, again, it's not a complaint. It's a privilege to be in a position such as that. And so you expect to work hard at it. But it is very hard work. And I don't know that people in the community recognise just how hard that people who are cabinet ministers, in particular in government really work. I mean, you work till very late at night on many nights um, and are up early because you've got to be across what's going on in the media and if there's something in your portfolio, get on the radio or the TV um, very quickly. But in between, you've got all your parliamentary responsibilities and question time. You'll be making policy, taking submissions to Cabinet, getting briefs, as you described, from your department. And I was in the defence portfolio for some time there are about 250 briefs a week that needed to be read, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of expenditure approved, any one of which could go wrong, so you've got to be very careful to make the right decision. And then when Parliament's not sitting, you don't sort of go home and lay about. You've got to hit the road and get out to all different parts of the country and do all of the work that's associated with the responsibility you have as a Cabinet Minister um, run, you know, as part of running the country. And on top of that, as a member of the House of Reps, you've got to look after your electorate. So that the times that I did get back to my electorate, which was in the western suburbs of Newcastle on the western side of Lake Macquarie, New South Wales, you know, if I did get home, uh, when I did, um, I'd need to get out and about on the, in the commu- local community for the people that I was representing directly in Parliament. So it's a, it's a lot of work. And I don't raise all that as I want to emphasise as any form of complaint. I was very privileged to have that opportunity and that responsibility. But I reckon it's an important thing that people in the community do recognise that a lot of people work very hard, you know, in a representative role like that. Plus sometimes, uh, and, and this is a sort of... Well, it's, it's sort of a weird but also funny episode in your book. You have to run around the country chasing the Prime Minister, trying to get him <laughs> to make a decision on something. Well, that was one of you know, the reasons that Kevin Rudd lost support that you're pointing to there from, from his senior colleagues, in that he, it was his approach to running government that really caused him problems. It's a huge responsibility being Prime Minister, but there's nothing more important than being very disciplined, focused, methodical and delegating 
and meeting timelines, you know, deadlines for making decisions. And um, he really didn't manage that well. Julia Gillard, by contrast, was a very good Prime Minister in that respect. She ran a very disciplined operation, um, you know, chaired Cabinet very professionally, and decisions got made in time. But Kevin Rudd had this practice of, uh, um, you know, having a kitchen cabinet, if you like, and then people, in order to be able to get before him in his busy schedule, he had to follow him around the country from one city to the next, trying to get before the kitchen cabinet in order to get a decision made. And, of course, it didn't work, and didn't work very well at all for good decision-making or timely decision-making, and that's what cost him a lot of support. This is my favourite quote from your book. Leadership is the bridge between politics and reform. That's good, isn't it? Did you lift that from someone? Was that one of yours, Greg? <laughs> I, I, I like it. I think it's fantastic. Oh, it is. It, it's important. I've been in leadership roles most of my working life, so I've learned a fair bit about what it takes to try and get people behind something. I mean, you're always the world is always changing, society's changing, the economy's changing, and it, pres- it presents a lot of difficulty for people. You've got to lead them through. Isn't isn't that the problem with politics? Today, and when I say today, I don't just mean today, I mean over the last several years, is that the leaders are, are trying to nestle in behind public opinion, find out yeah. what it is, then do what that is, rather than be the bridge between politics and reform. Yeah, well, I didn't like that aspect of contemporary politics. You know, that there's one tendency within national politics to look at opinion polls and, of course, then to go out and for the leader to simply replicate what they've learnt from opinion polls that most people think. And I suppose there's a role for that, to try and understand what community opinion is and to represent it. But to really be an effective leader and a responsible one, I think you've got to not only understand what people are thinking, but also tell them what they need to hear about what's really going on in the world and the issues that will be coming at them and that they need to prepare for. And that's what really good leaders do. They understand what people are thinking, but also tell them what they need to know in order to be able to make sound decisions. And that's lacking at times in national political leadership, I think. One one example of that, I reckon, is about the climate change issue. And obviously, I'm not a objective um, commentator about this, but... You know, that, the empirical evidence is just mounting and mounting and mounting about the impact of climate change on future generations. But making the reforms that are necessary to deal with it require really strong leadership to the community. It's the easiest thing in the world to go out and tell people, oh, carbon tax is a terrible thing, shocking, you know, going to do terrible things, push up the cost of living. But you actually have a responsibility as a leader to go to people and say, look, this is what's coming? Do you want your children and grandchildren to be confronted by this? Or do you want to take some responsibility now? And if you do, this is what it costs. Greg Combe's my guest. June 2013, the Rudd forces were looming. Julia Gillard offered to stand aside and back you for, for the leadership. Uh, you had health, health problems. Uh, you had oste- been diagnosed with osteoporosis the previous year. But it sounds like pretty much you were just exhausted and that's why you declined is that right there's a bit of all of that in it james for sure yeah you know by the time june 2013 came around i'd had 30 years full-time work in the labor movement and 
you know, many of the events we've, we've mentioned this evening but they're in my book, but um, I was quite tired from all of that. Um, I knew that if I was to take over from Julia Gillard, you know, to, if I could have gained the support to do so, I would have needed to be 100% fit, and I wasn't. I'd had problems with osteoporosis, of course, and uh, as, as I've mentioned in the book and you've pointed to, but also I had a vascular problem and I was just absolutely exhausted and I didn't think that I was 100% right to take it on and that's why I didn't. Is your health better now? <clears throat> yes, yeah, so now that I can oh, lead a bit more normal life, I'm much better shape, but I've still got the same health issues, but I can manage them better. Yeah, yeah. Two, two quotes from your book. Um, one, I think on the very first page, I prioritise work over family to my detriment and the detriment of those close to me for too long. That's a very... It's not a nuanced statement. That is a very bold statement that suggests regret. Oh, look, that's right, James, to be honest. But then again, I'm also very proud of what I've done in my work and so is my family and, and my friends. Yeah. Nothing's, you know, black and white with, with this sort of thing. I'm a very passionate person. I've got very strong values. I've been very privileged to do many of the things that I have. I've had the support of the trade unions and the Labor Party to do these things, but it doesn't come, you know, it's not cost-free in your personal life or your well-being. And um, I think some of the health issues that I'm confronting are to do with how I've worked over the last 30-odd years or so, and there's no doubt that if you spoke to my friends and, and family members, they'd say that it's come at a cost as well. So. Um, that's just the reality of it. Mm. Um, I don't know that regret's the right thing. I wouldn't want to change anything. I'm really proud of you what wouldn't? I've done. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, so you know, I, I figure that I've had tremendous privilege as well. The second quote, the final words of your book: "There's some fight left in me yet." So, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> What's going to happen now? What's the next fight, Greg? I don't. I don't really know. I said at my book launch the other day that uh, there's a bit of fight left in me, and I'm not quite really sure what to do with it. But you know, I'm, I'm got some satisfying work that I'm doing at the moment with industry superannuation funds and helping uh, people who are going to lose their jobs in South Australia from the closure of the car industry. Um, you know, but I'd, I'd like to continue to contribute in some way, but not at the level of intensity that needs to be a member of, a, of Parliament. Um, I'll just look for some other way of trying to, you know, contribute to the society. So does that mean you've, uh, you know, expanded your leisure pursuits? I know you breed finches, but have you taken up, you know, other new... Uh, other new hobbies since you've had a bit more time? <laughs> oh, not so much, but I just got a bit more time for spending uh, time with my partner, Juanita. And, yes. And, uh, you know, I've had my daughter up from Melbourne just over the last week or so, so doing things that, as we were talking about just a moment ago, you know, spending time with family and friends, that's important to me and, and uh, like to help my parents. They're my mother's... Uh, you know, ageing and my stepfather's now in a nursing home, so... Now it's you know, your just... partner that's out every night, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. When so you can, watch her on, you can watch her on TV. Yeah, I watch her on telly, but she gets home and we, we spend a bit of time together. Uh, two text messages to end, Greg. Uh, Edward says, James, put to combat that the Labor Party's flip-flop on climate change did more to damage public opinion than Tony Abbott's denial. Um, just a quick answer on that one, but I'm not sure you'd deny that too much, would you? No, I wouldn't deny yeah. that too much. You know, we, we should have, 
in 2009 after it had been rejected by the Senate, by the Greens and Tony Abbott. I think we should have had a double dissolution election. And the last one, Rob the Plumber. Hi, James. How bloody wonderful to hear your interview with Greg Combay. I once nominated him for Australian of the Year, one of nature's gentlemen. Can't wait to read the book. So that's a good place to end. Thanks so much, Greg. Lovely to speak to you. It's a great book. It's called The Fights of My Life, and it's a really interesting uh, uh, examination of Greg Combe's life, but also some of the really significant things that have happened in our country over the last uh, last two or three decades. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. All the Thanks best. very much, James. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Great, great pleasure.